This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. These are our readings apportioned for today. We worship the Lord by hearing them. First reading is from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 63. I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindness. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bore them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy and he fought against them. And then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people, saying, Where is he who brought them out of the sea, with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble. As a beast goes down into the valley and the spirit of the Lord causes him to rest, so you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A second portion from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 2. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason... He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. An ancient tradition to stand as we read the gospel or hear the gospel, as we hear the good news of what God is doing through Jesus the Messiah. And our portion from the gospel according to Matthew. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, 
Take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. And then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem, and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. And then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he had heard that uh, Achilas was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Again, let's pray. Father in heaven, we asked before that you would send your Holy Spirit into this place. And now we pray that uh, your Holy Spirit will be one who teaches us, submit ourselves to the authority of your word. And Lord, we pray that uh, you'll give us uh, ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, forgive us when we're stubborn, willfully blind. Lord, forgive our laziness. Forgive our fear to grow. Forgive our uh, many anxieties, Lord. We just pray that uh, your spirit will come and gently, Lord, make us willing or help us to be willing to be obedient to you. We ask this for the sake of your son again, Jesus the Messiah. Amen. Today, um, if you go by the <clears throat> church calendar, which sometimes is helpful, sometimes not, this uh, is the first Sunday after Christmas. It's also, uh, well, yesterday was the Feast of the Holy Innocents. So every year on the fourth day of Christmas, the um, church, uh, traditional churches at least, uh, remember the massacre or the genocide of uh, the babies, uh, children under two years old in the uh, Bethlehem area. And uh, we also remembered the so-called flight to uh, Egypt 
Jesus and the Holy Family uh, running for their lives, running from King Herod uh, and making their way uh, to a place of safety, to, to Egypt, uh, which is, of course, is a very interesting place, is it not? Because at times Egypt is not only a refuge, but at other times Egypt is a, uh, a place of danger in the scripture. So there's a, uh, a paradox uh, that we have. Now, this story, the story of, uh, that we uh, read in the gospel, um, really should not be called uh, the flight to Egypt. Uh, because in, we'll see in a few minutes, the Messiah doesn't run away. And um, sometimes we, uh, our understanding of Christmas is uh, becomes very cloudy, and unfortunately, we lose uh, focus. And again, I think the story that we just read uh, really, in a way, illustrates, or should illustrate, or should be a reminder of what uh, Christmas is all about. But as I said earlier, or I said this morning, and by the way, if you were here this morning, I apologize, but we do sometimes work on the principle here that um, most people, at least, forget a sermon 15 or 20 minutes after they leave the church. So many of my remarks, not all of them, uh, may uh, sound familiar, depending on how, how sharp your memory uh, your memory is. But look, part of what um, causes us uh, a huge, uh, really a huge problem uh, would be, and here it would be good to quote C.S. Lewis, is that uh, the incarnation, as we celebrate it during, uh, during the feast of Christmas or during the Christmas season, has become so trivialized, has it not? Yes, it becomes, um, it's about uh, Frosty the Snowman and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You might say not only has it become trivialized, it's become incredibly secularized. And even for people or folks who, who do have a biblical uh, frame of reference, uh, it's also become sentimentalized because it's become a story about a baby. And babies are all, all babies are cute. Uh, and it's very easy to gush and to be excited uh, about a baby. Yes, but again, uh, Christmas being, uh, becoming sentimental, uh, as it often does, we lose the proper perspective. The proper perspective, really, of Christmas is the story we just read. It is the story, yes, of a wicked, paranoid, egomaniac, a King Herod. By the, one, by the way, he's one of five Herods in the New Testament that opposed, not only opposed Jesus, but opposed the early church. Yes, they're, they're, they're all from the same family, as you uh, may imagine. Uh, it is about a genocide. Uh, it is about a family 
uh, in anxiety, fleeing for their lives, going uh, as refugees to Egypt. I know for some of the American, our American listeners on the podcast, I think there are eight or nine in the U.S. who listen to this, they will know that there's this big debate going on in the United States. Was Jesus a refugee? Uh, And the question isn't so much a biblical question. It has everything to do with current American politics uh, and the attitude. What should should our attitude be towards immigrants, towards refugees, so on and so forth? Yes, but actually Jesus was a refugee. He had to flee for his life. He had to flee uh, from Herod. Uh, And once he returned to this country, his family had to flee from Herod's son, Archelaus, uh, leave the area of Judea and the southern part of the country and go north uh, to Nazareth, where God kept them hidden. God kept them safe. And this is something that we'll speak about uh, next week. The meaning, what is the meaning of, uh, of the... Matthew's understanding, rather, that uh, Jesus shall be called uh, a Nazarene. So this is, this is a story of Christmas. It's a story of hope. It's a story of Emmanuel, God being with us, but not so much in a crash scene or in a shopping mall or in, uh, in the midst of watching a movie, It's a Wonderful Life, Yes, under the mistletoe, or even singing the Christmas carols in a warm church with candles. Yeah. Christmas is found. Yes, the message of Christmas is God with us in the midst of suffering, in the midst of disappointment. Yes, in the midst of genocide, in the midst of unexplainable evil. Now we've... Part of the problem, yes, is that we are so familiar with language. We've heard these songs, many of us, we've heard these stories, we've read sometimes the gospel messages, uh, passages, I should say, over and over again, and we become so familiar with them that they don't shock us, they don't cause us to be in awe, they don't cause us to be in wonder, and it becomes a bit of ho-hum. And the job, I think, of preaching, and actually sometimes poetry too, the job of preaching is to sometimes take old stories and old truths and to put them into new languages or put them into new truths. And how would we do that today? What would be a new way? What would be a, a new story? Yes? to describe, uh, not to describe, but to sum up Christmas. And the story that um, speaks to me very powerfully, it's a story I uh, tell every time I go to Yad Vashem with a group. It's a story that we very often tell in Poland. When uh, we take groups to Poland, people want to know, people ask the inevitable question, how did God let this happen? Talking about the Holocaust and the horrors, by the way, of the Second World War, uh, and especially the suffering of Jews in 
uh, non-Jews in Poland. And so, Elie Wiesel, as some of you know, he wrote a very famous book called Night. It's a very small book. It's very sparse in its language. And it is one of the, probably one of the most powerful books uh, ever written. And it's some of his experiences, not all of them. As a young boy, he was 14, when he was taken from rural Hungary uh, with his family and taken to Birkenau. Now, Elie Wiesel and his father, because they were um, in good physical condition, were not murdered immediately, immediately like his mother and his sister. They instead were sent to work, and they were put in a labor camp, uh, a sub-camp of uh, Auschwitz-Birkenau. And one night, uh, they're summoned from the barracks. They're told uh, to uh, assemble, and the Germans are going to hang three men okay, for breaking the rules. Actually, two men and one little boy who was probably 13 or so and maybe seemingly weighed, uh, I think, 45, 40 kilos or or less. I I read that somewhere uh, in another one of, uh, in another uh, testimony that uh, Wiesel gave of this event. The two men were executed they said something to the effect of long live Poland. And then, it, uh, then the time came for the little boy. And the little boy being emaciated or being very light, yes, um, doesn't die immediately. He swings on the gallow for half an hour, fighting for breath, okay? Not alive, not dead. And all of the prisoners of this camp have to watch this. This is a warning for them. This is an example. And Wiesel is standing next to a prisoner who whispers under his breath, uh, where is God in all this? Where is God? Where is God? Wiesel said the answer came deep from within him. The answer came uh, to him. And he said, God is on the gallows, yes, with that boy. That's where God is. That God is suffering with that, with that boy. Now, if we say God is suffering, this becomes a very controversial, yes, issue. It becomes a very controversial subject. Uh, And ancient Jews and ancient Christians, some of them, not all of them, uh, were very adamant um, that God cannot be distressed, God can't be disappointed, God can't be angry, God can't be joyful, that he stands outside uh, the realm of human pain, human sorrow, any kind of emotion. That God is perfect. That uh, he's impassable. Yes, he's not able to uh, experience 
uh, emotion. Pain, pleasure, whatever. But I believe, personally, that that contradicts what we read in the Bible. And there were other ancient Jews and other ancient Christians, okay, uh, including some of the reformers who rejected this understanding. And um, they would turn to verses. Uh, for example, one of them we just read uh, this evening from Isaiah, a very, very, uh, certainly a very important verse. And that uh, uh, is um, Isaiah 63, 9. And in that verse, it says, very simply, it says, um, God says to the people of Israel, surely they are my people, sons who will not be false to me. And so he became their savior. Yes? This is God talking about his children, talking about his family, their sons. Yes? In all their distress, he too was distressed. This is a context of love. This is a context of family. Yes? When those he loved fell into trouble, yes, God himself, it says, was distressed. This is a verse used well and long before the arrival of Jesus on the scene. Yes, to understand or to explain how is it possible that God has emotion? Or how is it possible that God can suffer? And there are many, uh, many other verses. Uh, Psalm 91, you know, it says, uh, he will call upon me. Uh, no, I want to back up to Psalm 91, 14. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. Yes, that when we're, the verse suggests, these two verses suggest, that when we're in trouble, that when we're in difficulty, we're suffering, yes, that God is with us in a very intimate way. Is it not what it means to be Emmanuel, God with us? Now there are some, again, there are some theologians who violently reject this. But I think it flies really uh, in the face of scripture. And God not only um, comes to us, yes, when we're in trouble, but uh, Zephaniah reminds us, yes, uh, the Lord your God uh, is with you. He is mighty to save. That sounds like a um, chorus we should sing, yes. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Yes? And God is emotionally what we understand to be. Emotionally committed and involved with his people. Now, some, again, some people say, no, it's not possible. God's not like that. Like I said, he has to stand outside the realm of pain, he has to stand outside the realm of human pleasure. But let me ask you the question, what kind of God would we have? Yes, who just kind of sat there 
in a very abstract, perhaps uh, non-interventionist way and watched the people that he loved, his family, you know, go through horrible, horrible suffering or to do well and to be successful. This makes God into some kind of stoic. And not only does it make him into some kind of a stoic, then we'd have to question, actually, does he really love us? Because he's not relational. He's not entering in, yes, he's not entering into any kind of relationship. Yes. Um, so the, the Elie Wiesel story, uh, being in Birkenhau, would be a way of retelling in a way, the Christmas story. But it's not actually so new or so radical when you consider, again, what happened in Matthew chapter two. The mad king, yes, as I said, the paranoid, the egomaniac, someone who's willing to kill because of his uh, insecurity. Yes, genocide, refugees, Fear, flight. So this is, this is the story of Christmas. And the real story of Christmas is not so much about a baby, but instead it's about uh, God with us. It's about God, the Son, who comes and lives and shares, the, uh, who shares his life with us. Uh, with us. It is a God who comes and experiences fear and experiences shame and humiliation, yes, and joy and happiness and boredom and perhaps the tediousness of everyday life, who works a trade, who earns a living, who pays taxes who is adored and cheered, who is rejected and betrayed. This is the Christmas story. And we're so often, we're so often rushed to talk about uh, uh, Christmas. We talk about the baby. uh, And then before you know it, we're talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And nobody... Very few of us will ask the question, well, what was the life for? What was the life of Jesus all about? If his death and resurrection were so important and his life was kind of irrelevant, yes, 37 years, not 33, most likely 37. What were those 37 years for? I mean, goodness gracious, God could have had him crucified at 12 he could have shed his blood and that would have been the end of it or maybe waiting to wait to being 18 you know you don't you don't want to um, do something so terrible to a child and so we we so often ignore that life it's no longer important for us it's not a life that uh, we want to we want to imitate. And yet Jesus, in his 37 years, spends that time, yes, 
identifying with us and experiencing everything that we as human beings experience. And that's the reading that we had in, yes, that was the reading we had in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter two. He was tempted in all points like us. He was tempted in all points like us. And so, it's, you know, it's very interesting, is it not? How do we know? Yes. How do we know that we're in proper and true relationship with God the Father and his Son? Well, people will say, I'm saved. I trusted in Christ. I accepted Jesus into my heart. I was baptized. People have different answers to this. But, but truthfully, if you want to know what First John says, it's quite interesting. First John says the following. It says, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God is love and is truly made complete in him. Now, this is the point. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Yes, we must live the life that he lived. Yet, most of us don't consider it to be very important. But the central, uh, you might say, uh, fundamental, fundamental, uh, the central foundation of his life is that he comes to us. Yes, he lives our life, okay, in the power of the Holy Spirit and can identify with us in all our weaknesses, yes, in our laziness, in our brokenness, uh, in our dysfunction. Now, the point isn't for us to stay like that, but at least we have someone who can empathize with us who sits at the right hand of the Father and can make intercession for us. That is the Christmas story. Now, it says, and uh, as we may recall, that because of his obedience in Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus was made perfect. Means he became mature. Um, He became... Uh, spiritually mature, emotionally mature. Yes, because he rejected temptation, he was obedient. He then became, because of being tested, yes, he became faithful. He became merciful, as it said in our reading. And he sits at the right hand of the Father, empathizing with us, Yes, and making intercession on our behalf. That is what it means, Emmanuel, God with us. And you know, I have many uh, friends from, uh, uh, sometimes Jewish friends, sometimes uh, uh, friends from other denominations, and for some, I, for some very uh, interesting historical reasons, People find it hard uh, to pray, for example, to the Father through the Son. And so 
Consequently, you have rabbis, or you have saints, or you have the mother of Jesus. And I can understand because these, these can be very concrete and people often pray to them in order to get them to, uh, you know, to, to, to intercede with them so that they can actually intercede with God. What a mistake. Yes? Because here we have, again, someone who sympathizes with us, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who's a high priest. What is the job of the high priest? The high priest was to go into the Holy of Holies and bring the people of Israel before God the Father. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Sits in the Holy of Holies and brings us our concerns, our issues, yes, our lives. He brings them to God the Father. And God the Father, yes, Here's the son, the prayers of his son. It's Emmanuel, right? God with us. The incarnation, again, which we trivialize, yes, is well described uh, by a woman called Dorothy Sayers. Does anyone know this woman? She used to write detective novels, or she was a little bit like an Agatha Christie, although not as good and not as popular. And like Agatha Christie, she was an Anglican. Uh, I think unlike Agatha Christie, uh, Dorothy Sayers had a revelation, and you might say a conversion. And uh, after she had uh, her conversion, she uh, was asked all kinds of religious questions, and she always tried to avoid them. She didn't want to really write uh, about religious issues. But it finally uh, came out, and she started to, uh, to write devotionally, uh, to comment uh, on uh, matters of faith. And she wrote uh, some words about the Incarnation. And I'd like to read you these words. She says, Jesus of Nazareth was not a kind of demon pretending to be human. He was in every respect a genuine living man. He was not merely a man so good as to be like God. He was God. Now, this is not just some pious commonplace. It is not a commonplace at all. For what it means is this among other things, that for whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering, subject to sorrows and death. Okay? And he, that's God, had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can expect nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human experiences, from trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and the lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, death, 
When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty, died in disgrace, and thought it well worthwhile. Yes? That's the that's Jesus, our Messiah. Now I'd like to end with this. Yes? Jesus lived our life. He understands Again, our distress, our mourning, our suffering, our loss. And it's incredibly, I think it should for all of us, it should be incredibly, I'm not, sure, I'm not even sure what the right word is. I could say it's an incredible blessing. It's, it is something amazing that he can sympathize and identify with us in all of these things and more. And also identify what, with us in our boredom. Identify with us uh, in our joys and our pleasures. What kind of a God would we have, yes, if he was uh, unmoved and, and not sympathetic? But here there's an exchange. And the exchange is that Jesus lived our life but he now expects us to live his life. Yes? And I'd like to uh, finish by reading from Philippians. And if I can find it. Yes, it says as follows. This is a very well-known verse. But think about it in connection or in relation to the um, incarnation. Emmanuel, God with us. He says, um, what, this is Paul. He's giving his CV, his resume. Yes, uh, he's talking to us about his multiple identities. He said, uh, boy, I have a long CV. I have a lot of experience. He said, I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the, the church as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Which is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I, might, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and to somehow obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Yes, here's Paul saying, I want not, it's not that Jesus only shares in my pain, in my suffering, my disappointment, but I also want. Uh, 
I want to share in his. I think this is a little stronger um, in Galatians chapter 2. It says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. Yes? No longer living for ourselves. Okay? I no longer live. Sorry. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself. I do not set aside the grace of God. Okay? For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And it's not a place to become to discuss the, the role of the law and the place of the Gentiles. But Paul's his ultimate uh, concern here is that I might live for God because I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by the faith. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, there's an exchange. And the exchange is, yes, God came to us. God lived our life. He suffered like us. And now he calls us, yes, to live his life. That life of being a servant, that life of uh, love, that life that sometimes involves humiliation and shame and misunderstanding. We no longer live for ourselves, but we live not only for him, but we live in him. This is not uh, always very easy, uh, and it certainly can be difficult, since most of us, rightly so, run away from uh, any kind of uh, disappointment, any kind of pain, uh, any kind of suffering. Nobody likes these things. This is um, something that, uh, with God's help and God's grace and God's mercy, uh, that we can do. And then by doing so, yes, we, we are saved. Yes, not saved in the sense that we're going to heaven, but we're saved, yes, from the, uh, as Paul would say later, from the evil desires of this world. And let's end with this. For this reason, he had made, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help all of us who are tempted. And Lord, we pray that uh, the wonders of the incarnation, the awesomeness of the incarnation, um, the amazement of what you've done for us. We pray that uh, it will not be uh, trivialized. It will not be sentimentalized. It will not be ignored, taken for granted, as we so often do. But we pray that uh, in a fresh way, uh, regularly, daily, weekly, monthly, you will remind us of your great love for us. 
that not only did you send your son to die for us, but you sent your son to live for us. We pray that we will uh, take notice of his life, that uh, we will be grateful uh, for all that he suffered on our account. And we pray that uh, his life, his uh, patience, yes, his uh, humility, his willing to strip himself and to be a servant, Lord, would become our lives as well. Lord, give us grace. Give us that insight, yes, to live the life of your son, Jesus the Messiah. And we ask this to, so that you may be glorified and that uh, Jesus the Messiah may be glorified uh, in this world in which we live. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.